Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and on Facebook under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Hello, and welcome to our episode on the COVID-19 vaccine for children under five. I'm your host, Kathy Maurer, Director of Marketing and Communications for Providence Inland Northwest Foundation. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. Now let's get started. Joining me, joining me today is Dr. Brian Zimmerman, Division Chief General Pediatrics for Providence Medical Group in Spokane, Washington. Dr. Zimmerman, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at Providence? Yeah, hey, good morning, Kathy, and thanks for having me on. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm Brian Zimmerman. I'm a general pediatrician, um, and I've been practicing general pediatrics in the Spokane area for about the last 22 years. And I've been with Providence for about the last eight and a half years now. And as you mentioned, I also serve as our, as our division chief for our ambulatory general pedi pediatric groups uh, here in the Spokane area. So maybe you can tell us what's happening with COVID-19 right now. Are children, specifically kids under five, at a high risk for contracting COVID-19? Yeah, I think I've heard this phrase used a little bit about, about COVID-19, right? So we, um, we all feel like we want to be done with COVID-19, but it clearly isn't done with us yet. And the numbers show that. So we continue to have uh, many cases of COVID-19 in all age groups. And I think if you look at national trends, the, the case numbers are, are continue to sort of increase slowly over this summer. Um, the data is a little bit harder to track just because there's a little bit more variation in testing um, between testing sites and home testing that doesn't get reported. Um, but overall, the trend uh, appears to be showing continued increasing number of COVID-19 cases so far in this early summer. Uh, and then your second question on the, the kids less than five, like, yes, they are vulnerable to getting COVID just like anybody, but they are a particularly susceptible group for a couple of reasons. One is they don't tend to um, adhere to maybe some of the distancing or masking things as well as you do when you're an older child or adult. So they have some particular risk with that. Uh, and then secondly, just the way kids interact and play, they are up in each other's face. And so they are very, very good uh, germ spreaders. And then lastly, up until last week, they had been a group that was not eligible for any um, vaccines. And so um, that left them as, a, as a, basically an open group that did not have any um, opportunity to get that sort of um, protection given to them ahead of time. So, Sure. So who can now get a COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, so the exciting news was that last week that the FDA and the CDC moved to approve the COVID-19 vaccines, specifically our mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, uh, starting at six months of age and up. So previously we had had five years and up uh, from last fall, but this now brings it all the way down to six months of age. So basically everybody in the U.S. from six months of age through late adulthood is now eligible for, for vaccines. I know a lot of parents are pretty excited about that, but they have a lot of questions too. So what should parents know about COVID-19 uh, vaccine safety for children under five? 
and how effective is the vaccine for this particular age group? Really good question. So the, again, the specific vaccines that were approved were the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So both of our mRNA vaccines, uh, they have been changed for the younger groups, meaning they didn't change the integrity of the vaccine, but they, they changed the dose. And so the dosing that's administered uh, to our children is less than is administered to our bigger kids or teens or adults. So specifically just to kind of get a sense of comparison, the Moderna vaccine in, um, in teens and adults is a, what's a 100 microgram dose. And in the young infants, uh, it's actually a 25 microgram dose. And in the Pfizer vaccine, just uh, again, same thing, teens and adults, it's a 30 microgram dose for their specific vaccine. And in our young kids, six months through four, it's actually a three microgram dose. So the, the dosing, you know, as you hear that are, is a little bit different between the two vaccines that are available, um, but that just kind of gives you a sense of kind of where that is and the dosing relative to our, our bigger kids um, or adults. So that was really the, the shift that was made uh, in these vaccines. And then they went through the same processes, meaning they went through the same trials, looking at efficacy and safety to ensure that one, they were safe to give to young kids. And secondly, they actually were helpful at um, preventing disease and making them less ill if they do get disease. And, um, and so they went through the same processes that you would have seen in our older kids um, or adults and the same approvals through the same bodies through the um, Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. And then ultimately that comes out to our local state departments of health for approval. And they both, um, both those vaccines uh, were given approval for that. Maybe you can touch a little bit more on how the vaccine was tested. So specifically just on how the sort of trials would, would work. So they, yeah, so each of the different companies enroll thousands of people. Um, in this case, it would be thousands of children. And uh, ultimately, when they get to their late stage trials, what they're doing is they're comparing how the vaccine works against a placebo. So a number of people would receive an injection of placebo of nothing. And then a number of the individuals within the trial actually received the vaccine. And then they're followed over a period of time, both looking at, you know, what are the side effects reported by these individuals. And um, interestingly, like a lot of us, if we were participating in trials, a lot of people with placebos have side effects. So they have to look at the rates of side effects versus the placebo group and versus the actual group that receives uh, the medication. Typically, this is done at this level in a blinded way, so people don't know which one they're getting because that can sometimes, our biases can alter those results. Uh, and then they look at how well that's tolerated, and then they look at how well that prevents disease. And so it takes months and months of gathering that data to see um, how many people got sick in the placebo group, how many people got sick uh, in, the, in the vaccinated group. And then they can kind of compare and see if that looks like it's statistically significant and and to what degree is that statistically significant? Meaning, what degree does it actually work? How much can we actually see? And then the two different um, vaccines, they are given, again, maybe I should also point out that they're given a little bit differently, not just by dosing, but by the number of doses. So Moderna's vaccine is a two-dose series, um, and the Pfizer vaccine is a three-dose series. And so those are given differently. But what they found is, is that, in the Pfizer vaccine group, by after the third dose, they were, depending on the ages, about 75 to 80% effective at preventing disease. Uh, the Moderna 
with only two doses, not three doses, with only two doses, was about 37 to 52% effective in that younger age group of preventing disease. And so at this point, that's how it stands. Two doses for Moderna, three doses for Pfizer. I think the medical community expects that potentially in the future, there may be a third one added to the Moderna series, but that's not been determined at this time. So. So why did it take so long for this vaccine to get authorized compared to older ages? That's a, that's a good question. Some of it is in uh, how, we, how we approach medications and vaccines for kids. So um, I've been a pediatrician for over 20 years, and we know that medications and vaccines sometimes come to us later than they do for our adult partners. They just, um, they just um, you know, we've, we've, had lots of advocacy efforts over the years to try to uh, change that. And I think that's going to happen actually with these vaccines. So there cannot be a significant lag of, you know, leaving our youngest um, year and a half behind everybody else. But some of it's based on like, well, we got to start something new. You know, who's the easiest to enroll is probably going to be adults. It's a larger population and it's probably an easier group to approach to get them to, to be um, willing to participate in that. But some of it's in like, yeah, we probably need to advocate for our children a little bit more than even we have to see if we can get them to the front of the line, just like everybody else. Um, but then as described previously, it's also just the process of doing these studies. They take time. And so when you go through these safety studies, you have to make sure this is going to be a safe product. And then we finally get it out and then, we, and then it has to be watched for a while. And so these, these children's studies just came later than the initial adult studies, which is why we're finally seeing that um, come out, but it just was based on the timing of that. Sure. So if your child or infant needs other immunizations as well, is it safe to get the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time, or do you recommend spacing them out? So the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out and said that it is fine to get the vaccines together. So if you happen to be at a visit with your child um, and they're due for some other sort of routine childhood immunizations, it's okay to get the vaccine simultaneously with those, with those other vaccines. Great. Yeah. So what are the common side effects from COVID-19 vaccines for children under five? They tend to be similar to what we see in older kids and adults. So for those of you that have experienced the vaccine, you tend to usually have a little bit of local soreness. And in our uh, little bit older kids in this younger age group, they'll report that. The infants don't report that because it's hard to ask infants whether their legs are sore, right? right? Um, but some of those other things, so kind of body aches, sometimes low-grade fevers. Um, I think of the youngest group, irritability, kind of being fussy and drowsy were the most common ones. And that's kind of the six months to two years. And sort of in the two through four-year-old age group, it tends to be a little more um, low-grade fevers, maybe some local um, injection site pain, um, maybe acting tired kind of compared to what they usually would be for their energy level for a couple of days. Sure. So if a child or infant has already had COVID-19, do they really need to get vaccinated? Yeah, that's another really good question. I get asked that a lot by my patients. Like if we've all had it, do we need to get the vaccine? And some immunologists have done some really good work in the U.S. looking at that. And as we know that a lot of, of our, our youngest kids, when they get COVID, they often don't get very sick. So a lot of them actually seem to be very mild, or many of them may have almost no symptoms whatsoever. And they've been studying sort of what that looks like in their immune response. And what they actually find is a lot of people, not just children, but a lot of children too, 
um, actually don't have wonderful immunity following their COVID illness. Some people do. Some people have very robust antibody levels, but some may not. And we suspect in our youngest that may have very mild illness that maybe that also sort of predicts that they won't have a wonderful lasting immunity. Uh, they have shown, though, that those that have had COVID illness and have been vaccinated tend to have a very robust response, and they tend to probably have a longer lasting immunity. I think there's still a lot to be learned about what that's going to look like, and especially as um, the number of young children get the vaccine now um, and kind of see what that looks like. But I think that there is still a good indication because um, actually, and we all probably know a number of our circles around us of people that have had COVID, you know, two, maybe three times now, and it seems to keep coming around as things um, mutate and change. So how can a parent prepare their child for their COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, my, my experience in pediatrics usually has been that parents that seem to have a certain sense of uh, calm and confidence with their kids receiving any vaccine that the kids often reflect their parents and they, and not always, but they tend to usually do better. So if parents um, are sort of displaying a lot of their own personal nervousness to their children, sometimes that can be amplified in their young kids. So I think um, simple communication about, you know, we sometimes have to get a little bit of medication that helps us not get sick and there's a little teeny little pinch that goes along with that. Um, and, you know, our offices have ways of trying to diminish that little poke uh, pain that can be done and distraction and different things like that, different techniques to help with that. But I think if the parents are just very clear, probably not spending too much time um, dwelling on it, but just kind of being calm and confident, like this is what we do and this is how we um, prevent uh, getting sick. And I think sharing that message with their kids usually goes very well. Got it. So what else can parents do to protect their children under five from COVID-19? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think, as I mentioned earlier, this tends to be a group that does not like to not be together. And when they play together, they play really closely together. And for especially our very young kids, like less than age two, they're not going to be wearing masks. Um, and even in our toddlers that may be mask eligible, do they really stay on that well? So I think that's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful question for us to all contemplate as we look at our lives. Like, what do we do with our youngest that don't tend to uh, maybe have the um, capacity to really follow through with some of the things that we know helps to prevent COVID? Um, which I think is why this vaccine is going to be so important, because it really gives us another tool to help prevent those kids from getting it or from getting it and spreading it to those that may be even more vulnerable than, than they themselves. But I think there are things that we can still stress to our kids about. Um, yeah, there may be times when we do advocate that they try to wear a mask in certain certain settings with large groups inside. Um, we can still continue to stress good hand washing. So after they've been playing with their kids and they're going to eat, make sure they actually do spend a moment really getting in there and washing their hands and getting cleaned up before, they, before they're eating and, and all that. So yeah. Sure. But, so we have a question that has come in from a viewer. Um, and they're asking, if kids have COVID, how long should you wait? Or is there a need to wait after an infection to get the vaccine? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question. And I think uh, the answer is kind of twofold. One is, specifically the CDC will say, once you're out of your isolation period from your illness, you're eligible to get a vaccine. 
So, you know, once you're out of that 10 day window, basically that you can go ahead and be vaccinated. There is some evidence that delaying up to three months after having had your illness may show a slightly improved immune response to that vaccine, whether it's the initial vaccine or whether it's you are due for a booster in an older age group or something like that. So I think it depends a little bit on the individual and on their own risk and what they're doing in their lives to determine kind of what, how, how long they really want to wait after their illness. So there may be indications for them to say like, yeah, I just got it, but I'm, we're about to travel and we're leaving town. I'm going to get boosted now, or yeah, I don't really have anything else going on. Maybe I'll wait a while and give it a little bit bigger gap before I come back in and get that, um, get that vaccine. Sure. So Dr. Zimmerman, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today? Yeah, you know, I, I just want to share that. I think this is a really important um, topic. Um, so we know that there's a need for kids to be eligible and get this, um, get this vaccine. Uh, there have been millions of cases of children getting COVID. Um, there have been thousands of hospitalizations. Uh, and in, specifically in this young age group under age four, uh, hundreds of deaths, I think we're getting close to 450. 40, 450 deaths less than age four. Um, we know that some kids uh, are susceptible to getting other secondary uh, effects of having the illness, specifically like the long COVID symptoms. Kids are seeing that as well as adults. So people that take weeks or months to clear symptoms of their fatigue or other things that go on with that. We know that some kids secondarily, rarely, but occasionally develop this multi-system inflammatory condition where they had COVID, it may have not even been that bad. And weeks later, they become very ill. They're hospitalized mm -hmm. for that with significant complications. Um, and then there are all the sort of uh, other implications of having COVID. How does that affect their ability to um, attend school or daycare? What does that do to the family if they can't make it to school or daycare? We all have seen the effects on learning in kids and being out of school for significant periods of time. We've seen this significant increase in mental health changes in, in our kids, particularly our older kids, um, through this whole process. And so I think that we clearly can identify that there's a huge need to try to protect and decrease the amount of disease so we can continue to try to live more and more of a normal sort of pre-COVID life. Um, and as mentioned, our, I think our young kids struggle with other prevention measures. So this is why this is going to be such an important tool. Um, these are a safe and effective um, set of vaccines from these two companies that are available to us now. So I think it's just going to be a wonderful opportunity. The um, Kaiser Family Foundation looked at what parents were thinking about uh, vaccinating in this youngest age group. And there are a lot of questions that parents have, as you mentioned. Um, they said that only about 20% of parents at this point are interested in getting their uh, youngest, their six month through five year olds, uh, the vaccine right away. There's a big chunk that wants to kind of kind of sit and watch for a while and see how that goes. Um, so I think there's an opportunity just to continue to have these conversations or for families to have these conversations with their pediatricians about um, their child, their risks, who's in the home uh, and approaching that and trying to do that uh, in a way that's really specific to, to their family. Um, but as, as we kind of let off with, uh, COVID isn't going away. And so this conversation is going to be still real and it's going to be in front of us. Um, interestingly, as we've kind of watched it become more contagious, uh, as we've watched these mutations that get 
continue to get selected. They probably get selected because they're really, they get better and better at spreading. Um, we know that when Omicron became the predominant strain in January, that the number of kids that got admitted to the hospital was five times greater than that when Delta was a predominant strain wow. um, the year prior. Um, and most of those admissions, not all of them, but most of them, like over 80% of those were actually for COVID, not just in for something else. And they, you know, it was with COVID. Um, and about half of those um, had underlying medical issues. But again, half of them didn't. So half of that significant increase was in kids that did not have other health issues. Um, and in our toddler age group during that surge, about 25% of those ended up in the ICU. And so it's a big deal for those kids and those families. Um, so I just think that it kind of calls out that this is a conversation that people need to really think about and engage with their their primary care physician for their child to, to discuss that. Okay. Well, thank you to Dr. Zimmerman for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. If you're looking for medical advice, please visit providence.org. Make sure to follow Providence on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us today.